Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fintech Cafe, and I'm your host, Ambika Sharma. This is episode 45, and today's topic is crypto investments for institutional clients. Joining us for this conversation is a co-founder and CEO of FalconX, Raghu Yarlagadda. This conversation originally took place on Clubhouse, where we were joined by a live audience. So you're listening to that recorded session. In today's episode, we'll cover the founding story of FalconX and scaling a company through hypergrowth, the growing institutional market for cryptocurrencies, consideration for corporate treasuries around crypto allocations, and of course, the tokenization of real-world assets. Today's conversation is slightly shorter. It's only 45 minutes. So let's kick it off with a round of introductions. My name is Ambika, Ambika Sharma, and I'm a product manager. I've been involved in the fintech space for about a decade, and I have worked in the US, Europe, and Latin America. I'll pass the baton next to my co-host for her introduction. Thank you. Thanks, Ambika. Co-host with Ambika on Fintech Cafe every Wednesday evening, and excited to host Raghu on our show. As just in terms of introduction, Falcon X is a digital assets and cryptocurrency financial services company. I think I got that mouthful. That provides institutions trading, credit, and clearing across major cryptocurrencies. Raghu, you raised a Series C in September 2021 at $210 million. Congratulations with a valuation of nothing less than $3.75 billion. So a tremendous success story and with a very, for a very recent startup. But before we dive into Falcon X itself, I do want to learn more about you. You are originally from Tamil Nadu in India. I'd love to <laughs> call it out that I'm also from there. So that's kind of exciting to share that. But what brought you here and how did you catch the bug of entrepreneurship? Sure thing. First off, thanks so much for having me, folks. I mean, I see some familiar faces. So this can be a fun conversation. In terms of background, I mean, I started my career as an engineer. I specialized in image processing, specifically a variant of machine learning. After that, some my career at Motorola, and I was very fortunate to have worked with the team that innovated on how to move high-definition television over internet, because internet was never designed for video. The reason why that's exciting is that technology powers pretty much all of modern web streaming, your Netflix, your YouTube, your TikTok, so it was uh, so cool to be early teams there. And then I got terrible advice, especially for an engineer coming from India. The advice was, you know, you have to go to business school, otherwise the world is not going to take you seriously. So I fell for it, but very fortunate to have gone to Harvard Business School. After HBS, I was about to start a, start a company, but then I got a chance to meet with Sundar, who's now the CEO for Google and Alphabet. His gravity field was so strong and inspiring that I put my own startup idea aside and joined on Sundar's team. Specifically, I drove efforts on a product line called Chromebooks. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Chromebook ecosystem, essentially, these are laptops powered by Chrome OS, an operating system that's built around Chrome, the browser. It was a lot of fun. I played a key role in pivoting the entire product to from retail to U.S. schools. And in schools, it became a huge hit, right? I mean, uh, in just two, three years, it became a multi-billion dollar product line for Google and partners. So through 2017, I started getting happy and fat because the product was doing really, really well. At that point, I wanted to stretch myself, go back to the engineering and the product roots that I belong to. And I pulled some of the brightest engineers that I know at Google, at that point, Facebook as well, and asked them, I mean, what, what are you really excited about? 
surprisingly, quite a few of them said they were gung-ho about blockchain. For me as an engineer, blockchain was, it's an interesting technology. You're replicating the same data set, right, thousands of times. I mean, didn't feel it to be that uh, profound. But then whenever I, like, you know, was going through these existential questions of how is the future going to be shaped over the next five, 10 years, I always followed bright engineers. So after, you know, hearing that from engineers, I decided to dig deeper. And that's how I fell into the world of Tesla assets and crypto. But the entrepreneurship bug to your question, Ambika, I think largely, you know, the passion towards the problem that is crypto really pulled me into entrepreneurship yet again. So down the rabbit hole with crypto, what exactly, other than, of course, having the right engineers pointing their way, what got you fully on board, Raghu? Was there like a turning point where you knew this was it? I know you call it the mega trend. Was there a particular turning point along the journey or was it something that was just sort of incremental as you came? Oh, absolutely. I think after after brainstorming, working uh, with these engineers on a few projects related to blockchain, it became very clear that a lot of world's value would tokenize in the next five, 10 years. And by tokenization, what I mean is like crypto is the first use case. I don't think crypto is going to eat the entire world, but it's going to play a major role. The second form of tokenization is what we're seeing in the form of stable coins. Your fiat currency is getting in the form of stable coins. Your art and culture getting tokenized in the form of NFTs. Eventually your equities, your fixed income, your any financial instrument. And what's the power of tokenization? I think a lot of people, you know, get latched on and excited about blockchain. But we should all remember that blockchain is a tool. Machine learning is a tool. Ultimately, what makes uh, these tools profound is the use cases that they power. And through tokenization, I think the use case that you know blockchain is going to power is truly 24-7 operational assets, truly global assets, and truly elastic assets. And that to me, Monisha, was uh, very profound as I dug deeper into it because we're all used to Google and Facebook working 24-7. We take them granted, right? I mean, if Google is not available on a weekend, I think that's a, it's going to be very tough for a lot of us. Now, if that's the expectation from the modern technology stack, why are we okay with your financial services, your trading, your credit, your banking, your clearing? Nothing works over the weekends, right? Except very few. So... I think as wealth is transitioning from baby boomers to millennials, we are experiencing one of the largest wealth migration. Millennials are craving for a much more sophisticated modern financial system that's available 24-7, truly global, and it's elastic. So that was really, the, for me, the aha moment, right? I think money is moving. There is like you know definitely a huge market need. The fan companies... I'm not going to touch it very quickly because the regulation is still evolving. And I see great talent coming in. Whenever these three circles overlap, I think great technologies and great outcomes are born. And that got me excited. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. And then could we move to the founding story for Falcon X? I think you've given us some of the driving factors, but mm-hmm. curiously, just hear in your words how that came about. Absolutely. So after like, you know, jamming a lot with these engineers that felt that the world is going to tokenize. Great. If that is the hypothesis, now how do you build a company that is front and center of that tokenization revolution, right? I mean, so uh, 
I was at that point, institutional crypto didn't exist, right? This is 2018 and it was predominantly retail. Some institutions were there, but these are largely crypto native you know, funds. So institutional crypto didn't exist, but more broadly, if the world tokenizes, my thesis is the world needs a gateway to access this world of tokenization. Google played that exact role as the information got digitized at a rapid pace Google became the gateway to high quality information. And whenever there is this profound shift, technological shifts, I think the world needs gateways. So I started focusing on what could potentially be the gateways. So that is one filtering criteria. The second filtering criteria is like for any asset class to be mainstream, for me, like, you know, looking at equities, fixed income, and if you look at all the data, it was very clear that institutions play 60 to 75% of role in any asset that's mainstream. So if you believe that tokenization is a big mega trend, institution should come based on historical data and how equities and fixed income markets evolve. So merging both, it's like I wanted to build a gateway company, a company that truly will be the front and center of this revolution. And I want to build it for the largest persona that's going to shape that. The intersection of both of them uh, was uh, was the prime brokerage. And the funny part, Monisha, I think the third anecdote was, okay, I mean, if those two things are intersecting, what makes me the best person to build it? I mean, all I know about finance is through business school, right? I, mean, I was like, okay, I mean, I need to really understand the space. And what I started doing is started trading a lot of crypto. And in, in the grand scheme of things, it's small amounts, but started trading. And quickly, what I realized is there is ginormous amount of money to be made just arbitra uh, arbitraging between different exchanges. There is an exchange A, price of Bitcoin is X. There is an exchange B, the price of Bitcoin is Y. And I started, eventually the prices converge, right? I mean, based on any modern economic theory, if the prices converge, X equals Y. So whoever takes advantage of the delta between X and Y should theoretically make money. Such a simple notion, I started coding and like, you know, arbitrating between different platforms and the amount of money that I made was just a limitation on the amount of balance sheet or the inventory that I'm putting to work. Like, this can't be true. And <laughs> this, some, this shouldn't exist because they're far more sophisticated retail institutional players that should arbitrage, arbitrage this market out. But what I quickly realized is a lot of traditional finance, if you look at arbitrage and finding the notion of best price, Manisha, it was traditional finance is largely, you know, it's very regulated, aka all these exchanges publish, you know, their pricing, they cannot fake it because it's a crime, regulators are watching it very closely. So essentially all it takes to find the best price in those markets is a computer science grad, you know, fix, uh, figuring out how to connect to all these different venues. And after that, uh, doing a decent algorithm on top in terms of picking the best price or arbitrating between different prices. But in crypto, the problem is very complex. There are 18,000 venues that are basically buying and selling digital assets. And because there's lack of global regulation, the, you know, there is no control on who publishes real prices versus fake price. There's a lot of fake pricing at that point. So what we did is like, it's impossible to codify a few rules to figure out what is real and what's fake. So we started using machine learning. What felt natural for someone who's building out of the valley was not common practice for a lot of the financial folks. So because of the machine learning algorithms and how they started learning and evolving with the market, I started seeing a tremendous amount of arbitrage. 
And then I was like, okay, th this works. Maybe this, this can scale. And that led to starting a Falcon X. Great. Sounds like a move towards more efficient market in the space, digital asset space. Fantastic. Uh, and then just in terms of the industry itself, I think you uh, referenced the whole inefficiency and the current monetary system. Could you also double click on a little more of that friction that you've observed in the financial space in terms of that 24-7 availability and what that limits? Absolutely. The more I uncovered about this, the more uh, interesting it became, Manisha, for example. We work with some of the largest hedge funds on the planet. One of the largest, largest hedge funds on, in the world. Um, when I asked them, right, I mean, what about equity markets needs to be improved? One of the first things that they mentioned was like this notion of like market open and market close, right? It's not just market operating in in few hours, right? I mean, that's one problem. Literally, the market is operating only 40 hours or 50 hours or 60 hours a week. So that's one problem, the volume of the number of hours. But the second problem is market opens and market closes create huge choke points in the market for liquidity and trading. So if you look at a lot of trading, the, the, the highest volatility, the, lot of, the most difficult part of trading is during market opens and market closes. Because in terms of market open, you're trying to basically dissect every single news event, you know, the course of when the market is closed, have a thesis and you're trying to beat the access to the order books and all of that. Market close, the same thing. So one huge problem is this whole choke points, the natural choke points of have markets having fixed hours is a massive pain point. The second thing is the minute in a world where, you know, there is a fixed newspaper that comes out and news was traveling in a very systematic fixed hour basis, maybe the fixed hour trading model made sense. But in a world where like, you know, Twitter, Clubhouse and a whole bunch of new forums are dissipating information incredibly fast, there is tremendous amount of information with information creates alpha or edge that a lot of institutions and retail users would have. And if the markets are not open at that time, you're not truly taking efficiency of the information edge that you have. So that's the second point, right? I mean, all in all to say that the markets, you cannot expect the financial, we cannot move forward with financial systems operating only a few hours. So that's one part. The second part is the way credit works also seems quite broken. The first thing, I'll approach it from a little bit of a retail-centric way and then the institutional-centric way. Credit seems to be a mechanism for the rich by the rich. How do I get a credit card? I need to have a lot of money, so I get a good credit card. But isn't it supposed to solve the exact opposite need <laughs> that I need credit because I need like, you know, to express bigger views or whatever that is? So from a credit underwriting process, it's a very subjective process. And it's largely driven by, like, you know, people with the most amount of resources will have access to the most amount of credit. So, which didn't really fit to about 3 billion people less, left out of the financial system. Now, that's, that part is also very interesting, right? I mean, in terms of the number of people playing in the financial uh, systems around the world, because the credit markets do not allow people without enough resources to come and play, naturally, a lot of world's resources are not actually accessible to the financial markets. So the diversity in the financial markets eventually reduces the volatility and the risk. The diversity is simply not there because credit is becoming a choking point. So what if, like, you know, you can programmatically underwrite credit for every single human being and every single entity on the planet? That way, 
you can basically bring another three billion people to the financial system and bring more assets to the financial system. But flipping the coin on the institutional side, the same problem exists, right? Even for the world's largest hedge fund, to short an instrument over the weekend, if you want to short a stock over the weekend, you have to basically locate the underlying, locate the stock itself to, so that you can short. But finding even Google stock over the weekend is extremely challenging. You got to basically call your five, six banks and then go through a hustle of finding the locate and then you eventually f uh, figure out the start shot. Now, look at blockchain to solve the exact two fundamental problems that we discussed. You can make any asset class 24 seven, right? Bitcoin is a great example that's working at scale. Stable coins are a great example that's working at scale. In terms of locate, you can literally borrow any asset that you want through a protocol like Compound elastically anywhere from the world. And not just that you can borrow any time in the day, you can actually borrow it for a very fixed time. If you want to borrow that for two hours, 42 minutes, 38 seconds, you can do it for the very first time. And this is not available in traditional finance as seamlessly. It is available only for the extremely large clients and bespoke instruments, but tokenization will democratize uh, a lot of this functionality. So these are the two places where I think the markets, the traditional markets can really leverage tokenization. Well, I must say, Raghu, that for a techie, you know quite a lot about how the financial markets work. So good for you. I want to set the stage for the market space mm -hmm. that you operate in, which is institutional, institutional investors who are interested in investing in digital assets. Mm -hmm. uh, let that be cryptocurrencies or other mechanisms that are needed. So. You know, uh, very fam very famously, I guess because it's Tesla, anything they do is famous. Tesla announced recently that they purchased 1.5 billion in Bitcoin to hold on its balance sheets. And you know, companies like Square and other private corporations, they have also purchased Bitcoin as in as a hedge to inflation in inflation that we're all seeing. So I'm just curious to get your thoughts. Why are some companies more? I guess they're adopting Bitcoin while others are still hesitant. Uh, because you're operating the space, would love to get your thoughts on like the two different parties and what are what are the motivating factors for each of them. Absolutely, that's a fascinating question. We were very fortunate to be sitting on that information superhighway and what institutions are doing. And today, you know, it's it's very clear that institutions are driving a lot of digital assets and crypto assets as a market. So from that vantage point, the first wave of corporations coming to digital assets, aka buying digital assets for their balance sheet, either for inflation hedge reasons or geopolitical risk hedge reasons. These are two reasons that we heard, uh, Ambika. But we saw the first wave of these institutions come in Q1. It was very surprising. I mean, one of the largest, I think a Fortune 500 corporation came to our website and signed up. And we thought it's a phishing item, so we didn't even bother to respond because, I mean, you spend thousands of dollars trying to get to the decision maker and you have a very reputed person sign up on your website. We are like, yeah, someone, it's a joke. Can we but know who that hours, Fortune 500 company is? <laughs> I'm in the business of discretion, <laughs> so I won't be able to Understood. Understood. Uh, <laughs> so... After 24 hours, we responded. So when we understood what the need was, it was really, I mean, they were looking at digital scarcity in a world of inflation. That's one. The second thing is the geopolitical risk, right? I mean, if it's a trade war between the US and China, like, you know, our, the unfortunate geopolitical issues that we are seeing today, that was the second reason why they came in. But 
that activity really slowed down. If you look at the personas within crypto that are moving markets, it's hedge funds, it's proprietary capital shops, it's retail aggregators, they're, they're, and they're the world's largest asset managers. These personas are extremely active, but the corporations, the number of corporations who are basically getting balance sheet exposure to digital assets reduced after Q1 2021. So as Tesla announced, everyone's like, why is Elon doing it? What are we missing and what the hell is Bitcoin? <laughs> some of the calls were like, what is Bitcoin? So after going through that cycle, I think some public companies, and we've also seen a lot of private corporations unannounced came into you know, crypto through us. But after two, three quarters, what they realized is Bitcoin and eventually Ethereum as well because of ESG concerns, they realized that these assets are quite volatile and marking their balance sheet to market in the cadence in which they report was too chaotic for them. Their balance sheet, because X percentage was like, you know, exposed to Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum, they're all, they're all making money, but it's just that that volatility on their balance sheet was made it difficult for treasurers to explain to their limited partners or in the case of public markets, the public investors. So as a result, they started using some you know, options contracts to stabilize all of that. So the reporting and accounting standards around that and the broader adoption of that slowed down the corporations getting into digital assets, that use case. But the other personas like hedge funds, asset managers, retail aggregators, uh, RIAs, all these personas took off at, uh, at a very fast pace. Got it. Thank you. So we have about maybe 10 minutes. So I'll switch now to the product offerings. Mm -hmm. First question is, I guess it's more of a statement. Falcon is the proprietary trading platform, which enables your customers to like, it enables access to digital assets. So the question is, should I, in my mind, I'm thinking of Bloomberg terminal. Is it something mm -hmm. similar to a Bloomberg terminal, but for crypto offerings or not? That's an interesting analogy. I think what crypto needs i think it's a combination of bloomberg and goldman sachs these two parts of the stack are different in the traditional world because uh, goldman sachs is obviously a huge amount of respect for goldman sachs but they they weren't started as a, a technology company or a software company as a result the stack got fragmented the financial fintech stack of the 80s to 2010s 15s it's, it's fragmented for the right reasons. I mean, part of it is regulatory reasons on why it's fragmented, and part of it is like the core competencies and how each company evolved. But if you look at what crypto or institutions need, I would break that into two phases. The institutions that are there in crypto, they, want, they clearly want a one-stop shop. They all go to retail exchanges and they figure out after like you know, X amount of time, you know, in, in three months in the case of hedge funds and nine months in the case of asset managers, that being the spread, they figure out that they need better pricing because institutions are much more sensitive to price. More than price, they want, they're also sensitive to reliability. A retail exchange going down once every two months, they're not used to it. So they care about reliability. They care about uh, discretion, meaning if someone wants to execute a billion dollar trade over a weekend, they want to basically execute it uh, in a discretionary way so that which minimizes the market impact. So for a variety of different reasons, they want a one-stop shop that gives them these attributes. So what does a one-stop shop made out of? It's a combination of, I want to get the world's best price in a reliable form factor, which is trading. 
they also want credit on top of it because all of modern finance is if I have a view about a market, in, if I have a million dollars, can I get two more million dollars so that I can express a $3 million view? So credit is basically leverage and delayed settlements and a combination of different credits to express an outsized view on the market. Clearing is moving your assets from point A to point B. So all of these three things coming together is what a lot of institutions need. And that's what we're doing. So Goldman does this excellently uh, in the traditional world. Goldman and some of the major banks in the world, they do it really well. But now if you add that layer of Bloomberg which is the network of you know, the Bloomberg terminal where they can consume a lot of information and research and the chat where they can interact with a lot of different financial counterparties and traders, that becomes extremely powerful. So we started on the, the Goldman side of the equation, which is the trading credit clearing. Slowly, we are beginning to basically provide those data streams, that research, that market color, and thinking about building a chat interface on top. So that's in the works. Got it. So this one-stop shop that your institutions, uh, who are your customers, they're requiring A, pricing information, B, you said capital, but I wanted to confirm, is it more like using crypto holdings as collateral or is it warehouse lending lines? What does capital mean as part of that one-stop shop? That's a good question. So capital, it means two things oftentimes. One is like using my Bitcoin as collateral and taking US dollar as a loan to execute a trade. So that's one kind of uh, lending. The other kind of lending is like delayed settlements, right? Hey, I execute a trade, but I have T plus 24 hours to settle, which is what I'm used to as a traditional institution. So that, so you're basically allowing that position to be settled over 24 hours. In some cases, you can go up to you know 22 days to delay the settlement on a position. Those are the two types of lending that I'm talking about. Got it. And so are you... When you say that you provide them credit and treasury man management solutions, are you is this lending from your balance sheet or how are you enabling these capital solutions? So that's a great question. For the longest time, because that's, you know, if you take a snapshot of FalconX, I think I haven't seen, I haven't forecasted this growth at all. In three and a half years, we became one of the, one of the largest institutional crypto providers not just in terms of valuation, but in terms of revenue, the profitability and all of that. And I didn't anticipate this growth. So as a result, when we started credit, why did we start credit? We, we were doing trading. That was our first product line. And we were doing that better than anyone else in the world. I think we are giving reliable pricing and the pricing was really good and organically we grew. And all these customers began uh, asking us, guys, I mean, if you're doing trading, credit is a no-brainer. You should. So I was like, okay, fine. And we didn't really think about scaling balance sheet. We started using equity capital as the balance sheet. Now, what, what that led to is that business exploded. And I started doing fundraisers simply to power the credit side of the equation. We haven't used the money from the last three fundraisers. We're using that to basically power the balance sheet. And I know that's the most expensive way to power a balance sheet. So now slowly we are beginning to work with traditional financial institutions to get revolving debt lines. And we use that revolving debt lines on a proprietary basis and give loans on the other side, all on an over-collateralized basis. Got it. Very sophisticated. Yeah, balance sheet management becomes hard, I guess, when you're in this space. We have five minutes for the moderate session. So last question I guess I would want to ask you is, for the section, which is product offering, you have four different products, which I didn't list, but I'll list them now. 
You allow, you know, market making offering, you allow credit and treasury management, sorry. You allow trade execution and you also allow prime services. So of these four different product offerings, my question is which one is the one that's the most sold, the most, the one that's of high, high use? Absolutely. I think trading is the first product that we launched as a company in till date. It's one of the largest product lines that we have as a company. It's a door opener. Why? As the world is tokenizing, and it could be a variety of different reasons, as we discussed at the start of the podcast, right? As like, you know, some institutions come for digital assets as an inflationary head. Some institutions come as a geopolitical risk. Some institutions come simply because there is so much yield and yield in crypto markets because of volatility. One man's volatility is another man's yield. The yield makes it very interesting for a lot of hedge funds to come and play, especially in an inflationary market. So for whatever reason, an institution comes in, the first question they have is like, how do I actually trade? How do I, if I want to buy, what is the world's best price? Or if I want to sell, what is the world's best price? So trading is the first, typically the first touch point for a lot of portfolio managers, and that is by far our most popular product. With that said, the product line that's growing the fastest, which was very surprising to me, was we call this the crypto as a service. And six months back, what we realized is the the next billion users are coming into crypto. And these guys and girls are risk averse. They're not early adopters like most of the people who are on the call. I mean, we're all early adopters. We try, you know, retail crypto exchanges. You know, we 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 all <laughs> try and read about board apes and we, we want to be on the leading edge. But a lot of the next billion users that are coming in, they are risk averse. You know, my mom and dad, for example, and the next billion users and the next trillion dollars of assets that are flowing into crypto, they are not the early adopters. And these guys are going to their traditional banks and brokers and asking where the hell is crypto. But the traditional banks and brokers, the stack that you need to reliably provide digital assets, it's very convoluted from a technology standpoint. So these guys are taking a long time to build or they're struggling to build. So that's where the second major use case that we have, which is like, not just trading as the crypto as a service, we packaged everything that a traditional banker or broker would need to sell digital assets services to the next billion users or the next trillion dollars worth of assets. And that product line is growing tremendously fast. We started that six months back and 25% of our revenue in Q4, 20 to 25% of our revenue in Q4 was from crypto as a service. Got it. Well, you mentioned your mom. So I guess one question I want to ask you again, sorry, this is the last one, is the social impact side. You've started a foundation. I think you named it after your mother. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I grew up in India and I did my engineering from India as well. It took me an entire four-year cycle with an engineering to understand you know, an engineer does, right? I didn't have a lot of exposure in terms of what does an engineer do, right? I mean, how do you actually use technology to create value to the society? I mean, I read 100 books about it, but I haven't seen any of that being practiced or I didn't have exposure to the practical side of what engineering meant, nor did I have the exposure of like the leading edge of... And after I, you know, graduated uh, from undergrad, did my master's, my first master's degree, then I truly realized, oh, this is amazing. I was passionate as... Uh, as a kid about engineering, but I really didn't know how to channel all of the passion or neither did I understand engineering beyond the equations in a book. So it took me four years to figure out what what the hell engineering is. 
and for me that is something that i wanted to solve right i mean for everyone in the world to realize their potential it's a question of exposure i come from a small town called vijayawada and the very few people from vijayawada in india who went to harvard it's not that there are no uh, <laughs> smart people or hard working people in vijayawada it's just that they don't have the exposure so how do you actually create that you know balance how do you arbitrage arbitrage again is a financial word but how do you actually provide that exposure to everyone on the planet so that they can realize their full potential so from that standpoint we started sarda educational institutions with that one goal the goal is to create well rounded education and i am an engineer i want to measure everything so the first challenge that my mom and uh, i had is if we are truly giving well rounded education to this part of the country some day we should be able to place a student from our our institutions in at harvard just as a why harvard I mean, just as a placeholder yeah why not iit why harvard <laughs> <laughs> so luckily we started we started the entire operation in 2015 our first student from the first batch of sarda educational institution started her masters program at harvard this year so very very proud of that lovely you're doing such good such good things both in the financial industry and also social impact in india so good for you We only have 9 minutes so I do want to be mindful and open up to the audience. Tammy, I think you have a question, so why don't you join us? We are recording today's show, so please be mindful, state your name and then you can ask your question. So Tammy, there we go. The floor okay, is yours. There, good evening. Thanks for uh having me. Tammy and I come from financial services and Raghu, it's great to hear your story. I am inspired by your boldness and your courage to be an early adopter in this space life before i actually managed prime brokerage so i i do want to say though you have the most talented partners on your team so that's got to feel good clarification and a and a question so you're a really a digital prime brokerage platform. So do you I'm I'm making an assumption that your institutions when they come in you're qualifying them with required minimum equity and then I I've got a it's my question relates to risk ragu. So mm -hmm. are are you you know when they're trading making these transactions are are you doing synthetic trading, you know, so your your customer actually doesn't own the currency, he's just uh, playing the swap etc and the the reason i i'm focused on risk is i'm sure you're aware that the sec just came out a couple days ago mm -hmm. and they're calling for crypto entities to show the liabilities on their balance sheet you know for mm -hmm. their obligations to safeguard those digital assets so how do you see that impacting your business model going forward because it's you know you really can't plan for stuff like this so what's your perspective on it what a great question tammy great to meet you so i'll break that question into two parts one like you know what is it that we do today number two how do we evolve uh, as the world changes in terms of what what is it that we do tammy i think risk management in crypto this is one place where crypto as an industry should and must improve risk management in crypto is not done as well traditional finance does it so much better the way they underwrite uh, risk on a continual basis the number of data points that they use the way they audit the risk underwriters it's it's beautifully done in traditional finance in crypto 
lot of lot of crypto services provide under collateralized you know credit you know simply because of competition and a variety of different reasons to acquire customers and that's dangerous for a market as volatile as this assets you know offering 100x leverage on instruments and are providing under collateralized credit is very very risky mm-hmm. so as falconx what we do is we are a technology company operating as a principal and my goal is to provide a very stable reliable technology platform that endures and lasts i do not want to go bankrupt by underwriting bad credit so every position that we underwrite as falconx is over collateralized meaning okay. th- that is the first starting point so from that standpoint the way scc is thinking about the space i think we've been operating like that you know from day one of being over collateralized however we do want to slowly with the, da- the amount of data that we have we do want to basically reduce the amount of over collateralization that we are asking over time because we also want to make the markets efficient so hopefully that answers your question and great to meet you tammy it does thank you and congratulations again and safe travels and this is thank tammy you. i'm done thanks tammy Keithy, welcome if you want to give a quick intro and then ask your question yeah hi very exciting to hear from you i'm keethi i'm from the traditional financial risk management i have a background in that so my mm-hmm. uh, i'm very curious to know regarding you sa- said that the financial markets like yes they are trading hours and they are closed uh, for the rest of the time and during that closing period generally trade settlements happens that's t plus 2 and then there are regulations all mm-hmm. across the world different holidays all across the world so i'm curious yep. to know how do you plan to operate in future in the way where everything is seamless and these financial system providers are like google and facebook which are 24 by 7 and mm-hmm. how do you plan to overcome if there are regulations or like trading restrictions mm-hmm. from regulators across different countries great question and great to meet you kirti i think again two parts the first part how do you make all the settlements work 24/7 and number 2 how do you keep up with regulators and the trading restrictions let's say i mean a regulator doesn't like a specific asset and how do you block it or how do you actually keep up with the regulators so the first question on the settlements kithi you touched on something which is extremely difficult <laughs> in crypto so from day one as a crypto company you not only have to trade 24/7 you have to settle 24/7 globally So our first set of customers organically I mean for it's a three and a half year old company for for about two and a half three years we didn't have a sales and a marketing team it was all word of mouth and we're growing very fast and the problem with word of mouth is one day you have a customer from the US one day you have a customer from somewhere in the world and so essentially from a settlements perspective the way we evolved and to lot of the crypto industry's credit our trading infrastructure we built in such a way that there is absolutely no downtime and that's difficult in traditional finance i think when the market closes that's where you basically rebase all your auto matching engines fix bugs and all of that in crypto you cannot basically take down the service for one hour and then bring it back you know with revisions so you have to do something called a hot swap that's on the trading side on the settlement side we do the same thing so essentially what we do anytime you execute a trade a lot of customers prefer t plus one day settlement for the reasons that you mentioned on blockchain you can settle things instantaneously when you say instantaneously you're really talking about 
the block settlement, which is 10 minutes of time in, in the case of Bitcoin blockchain, you can settle instantaneously. You have the option to, but a lot of customers, a lot of institutions don't want to settle inst instantaneously because that's a lot of work. You do like, you know, 10,000 trades a day and settling every single day at uh, 10 minutes cadence is just painful for your back office. So essentially, most institutions converged on T plus, a T plus one business, they are T, uh, 24 hours. However, they do want to continue the 24 hour settlement cycle even during the weekends. So we have a back office team that is uh, spread across the world where we operate in two or three shifts that basically takes care of settlements like 24 seven on the back end. And that was very hard because there's no off the shelf system that we can buy. We had to build our accounting systems. We had to build our settlement systems the, completely in house. The problem, Kirti, the reason why you asked a great question is Settlements in crypto are even more complex that you get one alphabet wrong. You can't basically recover the million dollars that you sent. So you got to uh, you got to build safety systems in place where people cannot simply mess up addresses. And then there's security issues. So settlements is one of the place, you know, one one segment of crypto on the centralized crypto, which needs a lot more evolution. I think the good news is a lot of firms like us, we, we are building systems. We have been building systems over the last three years to keep up. So that's on the settlement side where it's truly a 24 seven cycle. Now, keeping up with regulators globally, that's an entirely different challenge as well. Now, the good news is there was a profound moment about six to nine months back when China came out and said, we'll ban crypto. U.S. and various regulatory agencies within the U.S. came out after two, three weeks and they said, we're not going to be banning crypto, we're going to be regulating it. And that was pivotal because most of the countries in the world, uh, like, you know, that, that have a coalition with the U.S., they're all leaning towards not banning crypto. For the longest time, we didn't have clarity on which country is banning, for example, India. Right. I mean, is India going to ban or not ban? We didn't have the clarity there. But now that U.S. took that stance, the regulatory clarity is emerging. It's much better than where it was before Kirti. Thank you so much. That's a lot, a lot you have built in like uh, such a short amount of time. Really exciting and <laughs> to hear that and all Thank the best. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Raghu. I think we are at time since you have a hard stop, so we'll let you go. But this is recorded and we'll clean out the files and upload in all on all major podcasting play platform and I'll share it with your team as well. So I don't I want to be mindful of your time. So thank you for joining us today. Truly a pleasure, guys. Thanks so much. It was fun. Thank you. Yeah, we'll have to have you come back. And that's it for today. We'll be back next week. Uh, next week, we have the co-founder and CEO of Daffy to talk about donor advice funds. So please come back if you want to learn more about the donor advice fund industry. So with that, this is the end, and um, I wish you all a safe evening. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you like the discussion, we welcome you to join us during our live shows every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. We'd be delighted to have you there. You can also find other episodes on all major podcasting platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate if you could leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next week, be safe. Thank you.